part. Uh, we've been going through the book of Romans uh, from beginning to end uh, and kind of looking at uh, the challenges that Paul presents to us in this incredible book. I've, I've encouraged you to read uh, through the book of Romans this summer uh, a number of different times. I hope that you're still doing that. And if you have been following along and kind of know where we're at, then we are. Uh, well, last week we pre- I preached on uh, Romans chapter 12. And so you know that I've only got material for 13, 14, and 15, and 16 left. And really, 16, if you've read the book of Romans, is kind of a tell everybody I said hi kind of chapter. There's not a, lot, not a lot of meat in it. It's just a lot of people's names and Paul kind of making sure that he dots all his I's and crosses all of his T's. Um, this morning, I've really wrestled with how to approach the topic that I feel like I'm supposed to share. Uh, I've prayed a lot about um, God using my words and maybe that you'll be able to hear my heart and that I'll be able to make this statement intelligently and appropriately. Um, I want to look at Romans chapter 13, and it really will kind of further expand what I'm about to talk about. It'll, it'll really give some truth to what the gospel really says in response to some of the things that's been going on in our country. I make very little, very few political statements from this pulpit, and I do that on purpose. Um, I do address things that contradict the Word of God. You know my stance on recent issues like same-sex marriage and the social rights of the transgender community. I've talked about this in here before. I've preached on how I believe that the Word of God says that marriage is between one man and one woman. I've talked about how it's our responsibility as Bible-believing Christians to set the example of what a real marriage looks like and how sometimes we as the church community have done more to damage the sanctity of marriage than the homosexual community ever has. Because we don't value each other, we don't love each other, we don't have marriages that last, that we give, we give up too easy. Talked about how gender is God-given and not open to our own interpretation. How when God creates us in the womb, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And He has a plan and purpose for each one of us from the moment that life begins. We've talked about that as well. That abortion is completely against what God has for us. That life begins at conception. And that... We cannot sit silent on some issues. Our responsibility in all of those is to love people, to point people to Jesus, and to show them what real love really looks like. Everyone has a sin issue. Everyone has something that we deal with. My sin is no different than yours. It may be manifested in different ways, but we all have a sin problem. What I'm about to say is intended to stay within that parameter of non-political, but still very much rooted in the foundation of God's Word. There have been multiple groups of individuals that spout their political and racial, social, economic, superiority jargon through rallies and protests and stand-ins and marches, and I've kept quiet. Most of all, because their rhetoric revolves around the idea that their cause or their Race is somehow superior to those on the opposing side. Nine times out of ten, these individuals have one single motivating factor, and that is hate. My policy is I don't comment on issues of this nature because most every time they have nothing to do with the gospel, and quite frankly, I have more important things to talk about than hate. This past weekend's events in Charlottesville, Virginia, require my voice to be heard. It's the position of your pastor and of Emmanuel Baptist Church 
that white supremacy and the alt-right movement is absolutely against the very word of God. This is not a political statement. This is a spiritual statement. You cannot believe that Jesus is king and also believe that one race is superior to the other. I will call it what it is. Bigotry, hatred, it's racism. And in no way can you tie this to biblical Christianity. Now, the difference between this movement and others is that none of the past movements have ever claimed spiritual authority behind their idealistic theology. I've read and watched interviews with the leadership of the KKK and the members of the alt-right movement. And they say that their belief system is God-ordained, that their actions are that of a true Christian. The leader of the alt-right movement protest in Charlottesville said, quote, a lot more people are going to die before we're done. And when questioned about someone who had lost their life in the rally, he said, quote, that'll be tough to top, but we're up to the challenge. These acts are being communicated not just by the media, but by individuals themselves as being God-ordained and God-sanctioned because of the superiority of the color of their skin. That, my friends, <laughs> is where my silence ends. The alt-right and the KKK believe that and profess that their Christian duty, that God himself ordains their work and their ideology, and that could be not, cannot be further from the truth. There's one command that presents itself throughout the Bible. That is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love covers a multitude of sins. By this, Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples. It's how you love one another. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love never fails. See, I believe that this issue of hatred and discrimination and racism on all sides is a heart issue. There is no amount of education that's going to change our country. There's no amount of legislation that's going to change our country. The only way our country is going to change is by a powerful movement of God. We cannot rely on our, our legislative departments to fix this issue. We cannot rely on our schools to try to fix this issue. Where does it begin? It begins with you and I. It begins with individuals who proclaim to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ and not just talk about it, but to really and truly live it. To actually do what he says, to live and to love like Jesus. See, Jesus was asked of kind of a loaded question in uh, Luke chapter 10 by a quote-unquote expert in the law. You guys know this story. An expert comes up and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to him that you should love the Lord your God with your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself to which the expert replied who is my neighbor Jesus did what he does all the time he didn't just straight out answer the question I love that he taught through a parable he told a story and he told the story of the good Samaritan uh, now you got to remember that the Jews hated the Samaritans they were they were a half-breed if you were they weren't real Jews 
the reason why they feel this way, and we're going to talk a little bit about this tonight, is if we go back into Old Testament history, okay, can we go back a little bit? After King David and King Solomon, the country and the nation of Israel split. Remember the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's capital was Samaria. The southern kingdom's capital was Jerusalem. And we know in 722 B.C., the Assyrian army comes in and takes captive the northern kingdom, takes them into exile, right? Um, they do something that not many other dominating kingdoms do. They left a few Jews in that area. The Assyrians moved in and uh, essentially made them intermarry and made them kind of intermingle with the Assyrians. When the, when the southern kingdom of Israel, when they... Uh, or the southern kingdom of Judah, when they were captive by the Babylonians, they had their 70 years of exile, and they got to come back. Remember, we're going to talk about that tonight. And when they came back, the Assyrians, who, who had lived up in, in Samaria, they have now been kind of renamed the Samarians, Samaritans. They, they discouraged the Jews from rebuilding the temple. They, they tried to kind of intercede on a lot of different behalfs. You can read through that in the book of Jeremiah. And thus, the, the kind of the hatred and the kind of discord and a little bit of that friction begins and it just kind of carries through you can imagine hundreds upon hundreds of years of this hatred for these people because they weren't real Jews they'd intermarried they were they were a half breed and so this man looks at Jesus and says who's my neighbor and Jesus tells him the story of the good Samaritan very loaded story you guys know how the story goes. Traveler falls upon hard times. People beat him and rob him and leave him for dead. And the only person who stopped was a Samaritan. And so at the end of the story, Jesus looks at this expert and says, who was this man's neighbor? And the man, maybe through gritted teeth, said, the one that showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. See how Jesus answered his question of who is my neighbor? He said, be a neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? Just love. And don't worry about who your neighbor is. Who am I supposed to show mercy and kindness to? Just show mercy and kindness. Who's my neighbor? Be a neighbor. Love how Jesus answered that. So church, how are we supposed to overcome situations that we're facing in this country, this black, white, Hispanic, Asian, it doesn't matter. We be a neighbor. That's how we do it. We as a church should be the leading voice of love and what it means to love one another. We don't spread hate. And most importantly, we don't allow others to claim the name of God as their basis for the hate. We be a neighbor. You know what I did this weekend? I turned off my TV. I didn't watch the news. I, I've heard that there were other protests and rallies in Boston, I think. But I went outside and I mowed my yard. And I hate to mow my yard. You know what I did when I was out there? I smiled and I waved at white men african-american kids who were riding their bicycles in our neighborhood and i just was a neighbor i didn't do anything spectacular but i just 
very small way. Showed a little bit of love to people in my neighborhood. Church, that's how we rise above. We do not allow groups and our voices to be silenced when groups use the name of God to push the wrong gospel. We stand up for what's right. Let's pray together, and then I'm going to preach to you. Father, we love you. And, Father, we fall on our face. The country that is so wonderfully blessed by you that continues to show our ignorance. Father, we, we have nothing else to run to other than you. God, allow our voices to be the voices that are heard. Allow your presence of love and your spirit of mercy and kindness to be the overarching theme of our lives. And Father, when people stand up and say things that are so contrary to the gospel, God, allow us not to be silenced. Allow our voices to be heard, God, and that we point people to the, what the real, true gospel says, and that is that Jesus Christ came and gave his life so that all men may come to know him. Father, let our world be changed by the way we live. And Father, let all of this be revolved around who you are and your goodness, God, because you are good. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So all of this ties so beautifully into Romans chapter 13. It's just incredible how God puts all this together. So let's look at Romans 13, and we're going to start in verse 8. And this kind of gives such a it's an incredible picture of the truth of God's Word and how we should apply this to our life. Let's read together. Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. In the original language, there's a, there's a much deeper meaning to this phrase than what we have in our English text. If you read the preceding verses in chapter 13, Paul's talking about uh, things that we owe. If you owe uh, taxes, then pay taxes. Don't you love that? If, if you owe revenue, then pay revenue. If you owe honor, then honor. If you owe respect, then respect. And then he switches gears from this what you owe to a debt that you can never pay back. See, the play here is this is what we owe, but this is what we can never repay. This debt of love one another. And we read this passage of love one another, and, and we all know that this means everybody, right? Love one another. That's everybody. But then Paul repeats that. It says, whoever loves his fellow man. The, the, the language here is very specific because it means something even deeper. This word of fellow man literally translates into the other. He says, love one another, and whoever loves the other really fulfills the law. The other means not of the same nature, form, class, or kind, different. See, we're really good at loving our fellow man. We like that translation better, right? We're really good at loving people that look like us and talk like us and go to church like us and smell like us and dress like us. But when the Bible says to love your fellow man, it means to love the other people who don't look like you, 
who don't act like you, who don't believe the same thing that you believe. It's that you love the other anyway. It doesn't change the command. It challenges our internal spirit to love. We, we're really good at putting up little mini walls and saying, well, I'm going to love this person to this point. I'm going to love them from a distance. I'm going to love them maybe just by not really talking to them. Or right? I'm just I'm showing love, but the Bible says to love them. And if you love them, then you're fulfilling the commandment of the law. You're really fulfilling all that, that God says to do for us. And he goes on to explain, verse 9, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and what other commandment there may be, are all summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Interestingly enough, this list that Paul gives us, if you do a little bit of Bible research, you're going to see that this do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. If you were to go back to Exodus chapter 20 when we get the Ten Commandments, that's not the order that they're given to us in, right? But in the Septuagint, which is the Latin translation of the Hebrew Bible, this is the order that they're in. And so Paul is kind of going back to the, the kind of the translation that he's used to and says, well, these are commandments 1, 2, 3, and 4, and, and whatever other commandments there are, and we go, okay, he's kind of starting the list of the commandments. This is kind of the beginning of that so that everybody else can kind of fill in the blanks and know the rest of them, right? When we get the, the Hebrew translated to English, obviously we go back to the original Hebrew, not to the Latin, and so we go back to what it really, the order that they're really in. But what he had, what he had readily available was the Latin translation of that, and the Latin translation has them in this order. I think that's interesting. And he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. They're all summed up in this idea of love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew Henry, which is a pretty well-known commentator, said this, Love is a living, acting principle of obedience to the entire law. Paul's saying here that all these commandments, the ones that we all know so well, they're all wrapped up in the same thought of loving your neighbor as yourself. And, and here's the twist. It says that love helps you fulfill the law, but the presence of love in your heart is the law fulfilled. It's, it's like he's saying, you can't have one without the other. You can't love if you don't fulfill your law. And you can't fulfill the law if you don't love. This is, this is all kind of wrapped up in the one thing. We're doing all these things. We're loving people. And when we're loving people, we're doing all these things. He said, if you're going to really do what God wants you to do, you love people. And guess what? When you love people, you're really doing what God wants you to do. There's this incredible moment of you can't have one without the other. And then Paul gives what I think is probably the most appropriate warning for us in verse 11. Do this. Understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. If you've got a pencil, underline that word. Wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believe. Wake up, right? I wrote that down in my notes in capital letters with four exclamation points behind it. Wake up! It's time for us to wake up from our slumber and see where we are right now because the salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. One commentator said this, the true 
The genuine Christian life is like that of the state of a man whose eyes are open and whose faculties are all alert and vigorous. All besides whatever it may be, the state of hedonism or imperfect and lukewarm Christianity is like the hibernation of sleep. That's, that's really what we're saying here, and that's what Paul's saying. Is it's time to wake up. Salvation is closer now than when it was when you first believed. He's saying, Jesus is closer to coming back now than when you first got saved. And guess what? It's closer now. And it's closer now. And it's closer now, right? The last thing we want to do when Jesus is coming back is to be hibernating in our faith. Paul says, wake up. It's time to wake up and be fully alert and have your eyes wide open awaiting His return. We don't talk about that much in church. We like to just kind of live our life and hit the, hit the love moments, but we don't talk about what happens when Jesus comes back and how are we going to be living when He comes back. Are we going to be hibernating or are we going to be fully awake? Verse 12. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. I like the contrast here between daytime and darkness, the things that we think that we can sneak around and do and the reality that comes when light shines, right? We see the wordplay of deeds and darkness and armor of light. And just remember, a few weeks ago, we, I preached on Romans chapter 6. And I talked about uh, being instruments of righteousness. Y'all remember that? Uh, some of y'all are going, you, you preached? few weeks ago i don't remember that right so if you do remember if you do take notes which i encourage you to do a few weeks ago i talked about romans chapter 6 about being instruments of righteousness and what that word that word that translates into our instruments is really the greek word hoplon and that word means an instrument or a piece of war right it's a weapon of war and so when i challenged you a few weeks ago to be weapons of righteousness that our active duty should be dispensing Righteousness. Well, that same word, that hoplon, that Greek word hoplon, is the exact same words that he's using here to say the word armor. He says, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put on the weapon of war of light. He's challenging us to be weapons of God's goodness, to be of weapons of light, of truth, of knowledge, and of spiritual purity. He's telling us, listen, quit living your life in darkness and step out in the light. And not only step out, but let's be, a, let's be an active participant in that. And let's shine the light on different areas of our own lives and the different areas of the world that we live in. And let that light be what is most important. And let that draw out the things that are done in the dark. To be a weapon, to be an armor of light. Verse 13. Let us behave decently. That's another underlined phrase. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the sinful desires of the sinful nature. Shouldn't that be our theme? Let us behave decently. How do you do that? How do you behave decently? Well, Paul says here that we 
clothe ourselves with Jesus and don't think about how to gratify the desires of sinful nature. That word that's used to, to, to translate into clothe yourself, it literally means sinking into a garment. It's like, it's like the mental picture that I had was wrapping up in a big fuzzy blanket of Jesus, right? Isn't that, isn't that great? Isn't that a great mental picture? How do, you, how do you behave decently? How do you live like you're supposed to live? How do you put away all this darkness? You just clothe yourself in Jesus. You clothe yourself in Christ. And don't think about how to gratify the things that you want and your sinful desires. You, you just wrap yourself up in who He is. You sink down into Him. When we do that, we love people. When we do that, we live the life that He has for us. Too often we're too busy thinking about how to gratify our own desires, right? If we thought half as much about loving people as we do about the things that we want out of life, then imagine how different IBC would be. If we thought about half as much about how I can love and extend mercy and grace to people as I do about the things that run through my mind that occupy the junk in my head, Imagine how different your life, your family's life, would be. And so we have this challenge. And this is really how we're going to end. Short and sweet today. This idea of understanding our motivating factor, and that's love. That we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We go back to Jesus' words, who's my neighbor? And he says, be a neighbor. We stand up in our culture and say right is right and wrong is wrong. And you will not drag my God's name through the mud to push your agenda. This is what he teaches. He teaches love. And I'm going to show you that because I'm going to continue to love you even though I disagree with you. I'm going to continue to love you even though I believe wholeheartedly that you are wrong. I'm going to show you what real love is. I'm going to extend mercy and grace and how the distribution of love really defines me as a Christ follower time to wake up church time to stop hibernating in our faith and it's time to live this life that he's called us to hey this is Matt Overall the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church just want to say thanks so much for watching our services whether through our television ministry or our online ministry we appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service uh, Sunday morning service starts at 1030 our small groups start at 930 and we'd love to have you be a part of it we've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.